This is It Just Takes One. One person, one experience, one idea, one moment to change your life. Here's what's coming up on today's show. When I look at my life, that is a theme that constantly comes back to me over and over again, that my scribbles matter, my brokenness matters. What do you think of when you hear the word scribbles? I think of something that young children do. They have their pencil and they're scribbling all over the page or their crayons and they're coloring outside the lines. And even though those scribbles are outside the lines, they often turn into something very special and beautiful. In fact, I have boxes of things that my own children scribbled throughout preschool and elementary school stored away in my attic. Well, my guest today has written a new book, a best-selling book called Scribbles. And as you listen to him, you are going to hear what Scribbles means to him and how it defines his life and his purpose. When we start talking, you will immediately notice that he has a disability and you will have to listen closely so that you can understand him. He once said to me that even though he is a presenter on stage and often worried that people would be able to understand him, that someone once gave him feedback saying, when somebody has a disability and we have to lean in to understand them, it makes us pay attention more closely. And I think that is one of the many gifts that Chris will give to you as you listen to the podcast today. I'm going to let him share his story, but as you listen, I want to encourage you to think about the scribbles of your life. How well are you using them to live your own purpose? Let's hear how Chris does the same. Go ahead and sit back and listen in as Chris Simning shares his story. Hi, Chris, it's great to see you. Welcome to It Just Takes One. I it's so good to be with you. I and hope all is well. I, everything is well. And I am so happy to talk with you because this is the first time that we have seen each other since the book has been published. And so I'm anxious to share with the listeners what this has been like for you and all the ups and downs of this whole process as we get started. <laughs> so I actually want to start with something that is somewhat simple but also very profound. And in this case, it is the title of your book. The title of your book is Scribbles. A very simple title, one word, but it has a very profound meaning, Chris. And and I really would like for you to share with the listeners what scribbles means. Sure, scribbles is very dear to my heart because it's a theme that has been woven throughout the entirety of my life. struggle with tremors in my hands because I have a disability. And so because of those tremors, I was never able to write legibly with a pen or pencil. And whenever I tried to do it, my tremors make the letters jagged or they would fall diagonal off the page or they would not fit within the paper lines. So in my story about scribbles, I call the book scribbles because my life has been a life that has had to be lived outside the lines, outside of what society would say is normal. Because of my challenges, because of the obstacles that I've had to face. So to look at my Pimpinship when I write out something with my hands with a bitter pencil, they're shaky letters and they don't always, they're not always readable. <laughs> it's that's okay, but I feel like when I sat down to write out this story of this book, 
God really impressed upon me to go at scribbles because when I look at my life, that is a theme that constantly comes back to me over and over again, that my scribbles matter. My brokenness matters. My scribbles convey a message, and I need to own that, that message and live it and inspire people to have joy and to persevere and to overcome the obstacles that they themselves face because I believe everybody has scribbles. Everybody has imperfections. Everybody has insecurities that they want to hide from sometimes because they feel like that's an ugly thing about them or that it's a blemish that they wish they could erase. But God doesn't want us to erase those trials. He wants to use them in our lives so that we can succeed, so that we can find purpose in the midst of that. And so this is why the book is called Scribbles, because it's dear to my heart, because it speaks to me on a personal basis. But I feel like that message translates to everybody else when they consider what their scribbles are as well. I absolutely love that. I remember when we were first talking about the title and this came up and it just, it just resonated so deeply for all the reasons you just described. And part of what I hope the listeners will get from this interview as we talk is how important that message is, that our scribbles and our blemishes and the trials and challenges that we all face, whatever they might be, are the things that actually lift us up and, and make us um, give us purpose in life. And so, and actually, I love the front cover of my book because it's actually my penmanship, and mm -hmm. I, I write out the word scribbles, and it's on my cover. And when you pick up the book, if you don't know my story, you may wonder, scribbles. What what does that mean? But it, my letters go outside the lines of the notebook paper, and it's just. It's a monument for me because I feel like this is an act of celebration that I have been ha I've had the opportunity to get my story out there in a book form. Yeah, it is. Let's start talking about some of those scribbles of your life and how your life trajectory has gone in its own very unique direction. Let's go way back to, to really when you were a young boy. Um, you share in the book about what it was like to live in your neighborhood and, and play with the kids. Tell us just a little bit about what was, life was like when you were very young. Nostalgia, to think back all those years. So when I was a young boy, I played with the best of them. I ran out, I outran most of them. I was very adventurous. I was very naive to the point that I was actually hilarious without my knowing it because I was so innocent. I loved green machines and big wheels and bicycles and playing hide and seek and all those games. And I just enjoyed living as a boy. Then when I went to kindergarten at the age of five, I was so excited to go to school and to be a big kid, so to speak, and have my lunch pail with me and go down the street to where the public school was. And as I started going through the kindergarten experience, it just took three weeks. And my teacher started to observe some things that I was doing at my desk. In particular, she was noticing how I shook my hands and how they tremored. Mm. And she started to make some assumptions about things. And she called my mom one day to ask if they could have a conference. And my mom oh, what did he do now? <laughs> and so she, she went down to the school and and I had a chat, and the teacher just pointed out to my mom that she's been noticing that there are some delays in me. 
and not keeping up with the class. I'm having difficulty writing the letters of the alphabet. They're not fitting within the margins or the lines of the paper. And I'm not, I can't tie my own shoes. I can't, when I carry a cup of liquid, I have to walk really slow because I'm shaking in the, Contents of the cup, the water, or whatever it was, is spilling over the brim. And she asked, she she posed the question to my mom, "Have you noticed these things?" And my mom said yes, and she brought it up actually with my pediatrician. And my pediatrician said, "Oh, he's he's a chubby kid." He's delayed because of that, but he's going to grow out of those things. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But my kindergarten teacher did not agree with that assessment, and she recommended that I be tested. And so I was tested, and I was diagnosed at the age of five with five letters cerebral palsy. And it just really affected my coordination skills and my tremors in my hands, but I can still run, I can still walk, my voice was still great, people understood me fine, it's just, I, I was delayed in the aspect of writing, and through that experience, I had to leave the public school and go to a, I called it the special school, <laughs> for lack of a better word, it's the, the next that full year, I went to the school, which was a school that would teach me the skills of being a kindergarten student, but they were also therapists. Mm-hmm. They figured out ways to help me adapt to school so that I could go back to the public school with my five minutes cerebral palsy. And they taught me how to type with a typewriter. If you remember what a typewriter is <laughs> so many years ago, those and, of us who are ancient. <laughs> yes. And that's how I started to write. And I put away the pen and the pencil because it took me forever to write something. And typing became easier for me. And so the year after that, I went back to the public school. And all through my schooling years, I was mainstreamed. It never had to be placed in special education, although I did have tutors that would come help me for sure. But I always had to sit by an outlet next to the wall so that I could plug in my election typewriter. So when, if you were in my class and you were writing your assignments out and working at your desk, you had to get used to the tapping of the keys on the typewriter. That's how it worked. And it didn't really deter me. I still thrived. I still ran. I still played games. I still enjoyed life. And that really didn't deter me at all. Hmm. I'd like to just share one little excerpt from the book during this time. And it is the, the moment, Chris, when you were getting ready to go to school and it was the recognition you weren't going to be getting on the same bus as the other kids because you were going to be going to the special school. And you wrote this, stepping onto that little yellow school bus was the first time that I ever felt different from everybody else that I had associated with as a child. It was the first time I ever felt lonely. I experienced emptiness, an overwhelming sense of disappointment, and there was a hopeless sadness that lingered. I wanted to belong, be with my neighborhood friends, But riding on that little yellow school bus immediately made me homesick and caused me to crave anything that resembled what I had known. Yeah, it was. um, It was a weird point in my life because everything stopped at that moment where I realized I'm different. And that really frustrated me because it was, I wanted to be like everybody else. And it just really impacted me. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And stepping out to that school bus, I remember I read about this in the book. I 
I was scared. And it was a little school bus, and it walked down the Stoner Isle up to the school bus, and I didn't look at anybody. And I went to the seat right next to the window where my mom was on the outside of the curb standing, just watching me and making sure I got on the bus okay and waving to me to reassure me that everything was going to be okay. And then the bus took off that first time, and I remember looking out the window back to my mom, wondering what was going to happen. And we had been to the school a couple of times for orientation, and for me to understand that how the system was going to work and what it was going to tell for me to be a student there. But that was the day my mom had to let go, and that was... That was difficult for her too. And so here I was at this little you know, school must be a whist away, 20 miles away from where my home was and going back and forth every day, getting on that little school bus for that whole year. It's just, it was quite the experience for me. Yes, a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment. And I think, um, you know, the fact that you were able to then go back to the school and fit right back into what was happening with all the other kids is just a testament to the type of skills that you have and gifts that you have been given uh, and that you will talk more about as we as we go on. But let's continue just to share more of that story because things were, were you were back in the mainstream and, and working with the other kids, playing with the other kids until Easter Sunday. And I think it was 1983, Easter Sunday, yeah. eighth grade, right? Eighth grade. Tell us about that day. First of all, eighth grade is the worst year for, for a boy to go through something tragic. You're dealing with puberty to begin with, and your voice is starting to squeak, and you're getting pimples all over your face. And <laughs> so here I was. It was Easter morning. It was a significant day because it was my mom's birthday. It was my stepdad's birthday, and it was my mom's identical twin sister's birthday. And it happened to be Easter that year, 1983, April 3rd. And I had a water bed, and I wish they made those beds still to this day, because that was the best bed I ever owned. And I'm sloshing in this water bed, and I hear my mom coming down the hallway to open my bedroom door to get me ready so that we could go to church. And so she, she says, good morning, happy Easter. I say, happy birthday, mom. This is going to be a great day. And my mom said, your Easter basket's on your desk with all the gifts inside it. When you're ready, we will be in the kitchen eating a, a lighter breakfast because we'll have a really big meal later on today with grandparents, your aunts, uncles, cousins. It'll be a big day. Okay, mom. She apples back down the hallway. So here I am, laying on my back. I'm sloshing around in my water bed. I don't want to get up. It's just I'm comfortable there. And I don't know why, but I can still picture that day as if it was yesterday. It's so surreal. I'm laying in the water bed. I'm excited for what the day's going to bring because I'm thinking about candy. I'm thinking about Easter eggs. I'm thinking about cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and sister and parents and it's gonna be a great day. I'm sloshing around laying on my back as my water bed's going up and down with the wakes and the sunlight's coming through my window and I have a blind over my window but there's little holes in it like besides slits of, of spacing where the sunlight can trickle through and it creates a spotlight over my bedspread and the dust is shimmering in the air and I knew I had to get up so I swing my legs over the water bed frame. I stand to my feet and that's when my world fell apart. My head fell forward. So far forward that my chin was touching my chest and I couldn't lift it back up. 
And I, I don't know why, but I didn't freak out at first. It didn't really alert me at all. I just thought that it was strange that maybe it slipped wrong. It's some sort of a kink in my neck. It's going to go away. I didn't think much of it. I go over to my desk. I look at my gifts in the Easter basket, and then I open my bedroom door, and I go to the kitchen where my family is eating cereal already, and I join them at the table. And my chin is touching my chest, and my head is so far over, left forward. And my mom thinks I'm joking with them and playing some disturbing game just to get a laugh. I was kind of a clown in that sense. And she asked me, what are you doing? And I said, have a breakfast. Or I, I can't wait for Easter to happen today. And I'm excited. And she goes, oh, with your head. Why is it left over? I don't know. I put the cereal in my bowl. Don't think much of it. My mom turns around with the toaster the toaster. And she turns back around and my head is still dangling at the chin at my chest, and she's like, hey, can you hold your head up, please? And I am, or I can't, I forget what I said. And she asked, she, she posed that question to me a couple times. And I always responded with, I, I can't. <clears throat> and she thought I was playing the whole time. And eventually, kind of scared her a little bit. It was being defiant, I guess, would be a word to say, but to that I was just not really listening to her, what she was asking me to do. <clears throat> and so she raised her voice, and when my mom raises her voice, you know that you're, you, you better listen and pay attention. And and she was just frustrated. And so when I heard that voice being raised a little bit, I realized that this was serious. My mom is, is telling me through her tone that something's wrong here. And it scared me. And I started to cry. And my mom dropped everything and she realized that I wasn't playing a game. I wasn't joking around. And she she was trying to figure out what was going on. And my sister was there and my stepdad was there. And it was difficult for us. And that whole day it was talking to other relatives for Easter dinner about things that were happy with me because that whole day I couldn't hold up my head. And, and so we started going to the doctors and they referred me to specialists. They referred me to board specialists and we started to go through testing. And about two and a half months after I woke up that morning, on Easter Sunday, I was diagnosed with a rare muscle nerve disease called torsional dystonia. And it's extremely rare. And it's the twisting of your torso. And it's why I speak the way that I speak now today. If that will never go away. So my voice has been impacted. And now because my torso is twisted, I walk very differently than when I did when I was younger. And that has made a challenge for me because I can't run anymore. And when I was a kid, I loved for running more than anything. And I can't do that anymore. And it really impacted my life forever. And to this day, I still struggle with this muscle nerve disease called torsional dystonia. And at one point, it put me in a wheelchair. And I sat in a wheelchair, confined to a wheelchair for about five years or so. People had to bathe me and dress me, and we thought that I was going to die at one point. And it was just a scary moment for us. And my life has been a series of scribbles ever since, just trying to make sense of 
what is the purpose of my story here? What I really wrestled a lot through life, and there's still aspects of things that I still wrestle with to this day about being broken because of this. I have, in the time I've known you, and and the time that we went through this book together, um, thought so many times about that moment and then the years following because those are very critical years for kids anyway. Like you said, eighth grade, the worst year possible for anybody to have anything happen, but even through high school. And there's a, a point in your book here, just around that time where you write, it's isolating on the other side when your world suddenly stops while the people around you continue to maintain their stride. The abyss between the crowd and me kept getting deeper. I've been learning to climb out ever since. Mm. Yeah. I've really wrestled with people judging me just on the basis of how my appearance is. That's a very difficult thing to deal with. Almost every day I deal with it. People perceive things without knowing me. I do the same thing. I'm, I'm no different. I, I do the same thing as well. It makes sense. But to climb out of the abyss ever since is my reference to, I struggle with having, feeling like I have to prove myself to people that I'm not an idiot, that I'm not stupid. Mm. And because of that, you can adjust to this, Kelly. I am a type A personality. I am a perfectionist to the T. And it's just I'm very intentional about things. And when I commit to something, I do it to the best of my ability. It probably frustrates people. But I just, there's just this psychological aspect about me that I have to be perfect. I have to prove to people that I'm worth it. Mm. And I don't like that struggle that I deal with every day with that aspect of my life. But that's something that I wrestle through all the time because I don't like to be perceived being different. I don't like being in a grocery store and going down the aisle to get my groceries and putting them in the basket and have a little child stare at me and cling to a mom's leg because they're afraid of me, or being so vocal because they don't have any filters that they just blurt out something, hey, why does he have a big head? Why does his neck have a lump on it? Mom, why does he look like a robot? Why does he talk like a monster? And it's those types of things that I have to deal with every day. And that's why I struggle with trying to be perfect in everything I do because I want to compensate for that, if that makes sense. It does, and and it's understandable, and I think it's such a great opportunity for anyone listening to hear this because, like you said, there is a human component to we're always sort of measuring ourselves up against other people, right? There is a, a humanity in that, except it can be so hurtful and so painful to be on the receiving end of that. Do you have any thoughts on or any advice for people on how to better handle situations with people that are different with them in any way? What would you say? That's a wonderful question. I would say if you're a parent and you have little ones and they blurt out things when they notice something and that you feel as if they're being insulting to that individual, I wish you would step back from that notion and not see it as an insult, but rather celebrate the innocence of your child and wanting to learn more. They're not being mean, they're not being rude, they're just curious. And because they're curious, their words don't reflect that. And so you may think it's rude on them, or you may think that they're being an inconvenience 
did somebody like me if they're asking comments about me and instead of pulling them away and going around the corner of the aisle of the grocery store to somewhere else you just did a disservice to me and you just did a disservice to your child this is a learning moment it's okay to stumble and wrestle and i would encourage the parent to engage at that point and say well let's ask him or maybe turn the conversation to listen to the impact of what the child's observing in that moment so that when i engage with the parent the child would see oh he's there's nothing wrong with it means to see things different but that so i wish there would be a way where things could be more normalized so i wish people would have the courage to hit things at all when it happens instead of trying to avoid it because I feel like in the long run that may detriment things that much more worse for that child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And plants a seed that might continue to grow as mm-hmm. well, you know, right. to be afraid of somebody who's different or to <clears throat> eventually become rude to people who are different, yeah. perhaps. It may be uncomfortable at first, and I understand that, but if you don't hit it head on at first, it's going to build. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And I, as you're saying that, I'm also thinking, you know, that's one of the many challenges that you have faced in your life, you know, having to be out there, perhaps trying to prove yourself to the world and prove that, that you are not stupid and that you are normal. You just look different. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't have to do that alone. You haven't had to battle those challenges alone. You have been surrounded by a wonderful support system, and you write about that in the book. Your mom, your stepfather, Bernie, your friends, just very, very good friends. Tell us a little bit about the role that your family and your friends played in your life, helping you through these challenges and, and just helping you through life, just in general. Everybody that you mentioned, the groups of people, so family and friends and, and influencers, such as counselors, they've all shown me love through action. Yes, they've spoken words into my life, but it's their actions that mean more to me. They, all of them had sacrificed something because they believe in me. They believe in my story. They believe in my purpose. They have always believed I got in something greater than convey my life than I ever thought. And so they always were kind. They always acted when I needed support. There were very many gross details of my life where I struggled a lot with diarrhea and having accidents in my pants over and over again. Whoever was with me, they got that task to clean me up. And everybody who cleaned me up at whatever point in my life that happened, did it with so much grace. And there were times where I really wrestled with my faith with the Lord. Does he really love me? Is there really a purpose that he has for me? And these little acts of kindness, well, not little acts of kindness, they were monumental acts of kindness, where it was humility for these people to get dirty, so to speak, with having feces on their arms, sit up on their arms or on their heads because they're trying to clean me up. It just spoke a lot to me that through actions I saw Jesus in the, the way they treated me. And that inspired me to keep going. And I appreciated their words, but their actions spoke louder to me than any words could ever say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of um, 
Tuesdays with Maury, the mm. book Tuesdays with Maury, yeah. when Maury had ALS and was losing, you know, he was the professor and the Mitch album was the author, was his student. And he was telling him that he was able to handle all the things that he had lost in life until the moment when he could no longer uh, go to the bathroom by himself and he had to be cleaned and he had to wear a diaper. And, you know, there's just this, I guess the ego and just the, the vulnerability that it presents to be that open and that vulnerable with somebody else and allow somebody to take care of you that way. And I remember him saying, um, as a teacher, he's always looking to teach. And his, his lesson from that was finally he got his mind around it. He said, what I realized is that when I was young and I really needed to be diapered as a baby, I couldn't appreciate it. I had no ability to understand it or appreciate it or show my appreciation for it. But now I can. And so the gift that this was giving him was the ability to show his appreciation. And so as you're saying that, I'm thinking the same thing, you know, that one of the gifts of that, not only in, in recognizing the, the love and care and the, the reason to keep going, but also just the gift of, of appreciation that somebody would be able and willing to do that for you. Mm -hmm. My parents are troopers. They were, wow, with, with my life was at its worst. There were probably four years of the unknown of washing me, bathing me, dressing me, all these things, they sacrificed so much of their time, of their efforts, and just really focused on me. For one, they thought they were going to lose me, so they went and focused on me as best they could with the time they had left with me, which is an eerie thought to think of. And they have impacted me. And to this day, we are very close, my mom and Bernie, and they're incredible parents. And it's just amazing to watch how the love of a parent really overexceeds a child's expectations. It's just amazing to watch that. And as a mom myself, I have often uh, also, you know, put myself in your mom's shoes and thinking about what this was like to go through this as a mother and, and, you know, how much you would just give it up if it, if your child could be okay. And, um, and I would especially think about that in the point of your story when you really thought the end was near, there was a time, I think with late in high school, senior year yeah. yes. where uh, things were not going well, would you share some of that? That was really a, a, a scary moment in your life. And in your mom's life. Yes. I I came to a point my senior year of high school where things were not getting better at all. I was in the wheelchair at that point. So in between my junior and my senior year of high school was the summer where I was confined to a wheelchair. And going through the senior year of my high school was very difficult to me because talk about the abyss, well, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And it felt worlds apart from my beers. Yeah, they were always encouraging to me, but they would see me in the hallway and somebody would be pushing me to my next class. They were always there to rally around me and say hello and I developed some really good friends, and but I realized that my life is getting worse. And talk about internalizing emotions like we did a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. I started to internalize that much more of emotion. And one day I remember I had a conversation with my parents, and I didn't want to ask the question because it scared me to get the answer. But for some reason, I mustered up the courage and I asked, I asked them, am I dying? And 
they didn't know how to respond. <laughs> and their answer was, yes, you are dying. And we don't know how much longer you have with us. But that's not the answer they gave me. And they knew that I was a fighter. And they didn't want me to hear those words coming from their lips because they realized that if they spoke those words coming from their lips that I would believe it and in a roundabout way I would give up. And they didn't want me to give up to the bitter end. And I don't remember their exact words. I think they just said, no, you're not dying. But they really knew that I was at that moment because an internalist told them that I probably went vacant to see my high school graduation. And I knew something was going on. And so I don't know if I believed them, but I appreciated how they answered that, even though it probably wasn't what they were really feeling and experiencing themselves. And then God did something miraculous in my life where I made it through high school, I graduated, I, I wanted to get out of the house to keep myself active, even though I was confined to a wheelchair. So we started enrolling me for a couple of classes at the community college by our house. And I didn't think much of it. I just wanted to be social as best that I could, get out of the house, experience some things, and never dreamed where the college experience would lead me. And so I've been a motorized wheelchair at this point, and I go from a push wheelchair to a motorized wheelchair, and that gave me a little bit more independence. So instead of being pushed everywhere I went in a wheelchair, now I had to, I could, I got to control it with a joystick with my head and going forward and maneuvering this electric wheelchair on this campus at this community college. And one day my bus broke down. I had to have a bus come get me with a lift in it for my wheelchair and it broke down one day and I had time to spare. So I started to go around the campus and I just was exploring and I went behind the gymnasium and there was an Olympic-sized swimming pool and there was a class going on, a swim class of people with disabilities of various kinds and they were enjoying their life and having fun with this class and I stopped to observe it and I, I thought that looked fun and I wondered if I could do it and so I, I went to my doctor and I posed this question to him. And he said, no, I don't want you to swim. We've been over this. Your muscle and nerve disease is so rare. We are trying to figure out what study to your case. And if you exercise, it can do you more than good. You need to stay away from it. And I politely said to him, well, the medication that you're giving me it's doing nothing for me either. It's actually making me sicker with the side effects as you increase the dosage. And he laughed because he knew that that was true. They were just trying to help me the best they could. And I respected all everything they did for me. It was amazing how they were trying to figure things out. They were learning along the way. And so finally he relented and said, well, if you really would like to try swimming, okay. But if it affects you, you need to promise that you would stop. I did. I promised them that. So I got involved in swimming, and it just turned out to be one of the best things that God had for me. And I started in water therapy. I started in a life jacket, and, and two and a half years later, I was swimming. I was walking in the water, not all the water, because I would be a Peter at that point, but I was walking in the water, taking steps, and, and slowly but surely, swimming was the tool that God used to build up my strength. And two and a half years later, if people held on to be outside the water, I could somehow manage to move my legs. And that's how I eventually began walking again. So I haven't been in a wheelchair since 
I was 23 and I'm 52. So it's been years and I tell people everywhere I go that I'm healed. And it's funny to get the reactions. Healed? How can you say you're healed? Listen to the way you talk. Look at the way you walk. You're obviously not healed. You have this disability. And I I like I like play with them. And I look back at them and they go, Well, you're not healed either. Look at you. Because we all have our issues. We all have our scribbles that we're trying to navigate through life because God through our obstacles is building in each one of us a story to tell, a story of hope, a story of inspiration, of courage. And I feel my life has been a blessing ever since. It's been a joy. And now I'm driving a car and living on my own. I'm speaking. That's what I do now for a living. And I get to travel the world, mostly the country. But I've been out of the country a couple of times and I I'm able to be a motivational speaker and tell my story to crowds of people, and I love it. It's a joy, and I am living a life that I never thought I would be able to live. There's actually a moment right here in the book where you actually talk about a card that you received that read, you will see the world and the people in it before your lifetime is up. Yes. Somebody gave me that card once and and they wrote those words. And I loved the sentiment. I love what those words conveyed, but I didn't really understand its meaning until later. And call a a prophetic word, but the person that picked those words, they were right on. They saw something in me that I can see it myself. And what they wrote in that card is actually what I'm living out today. I am seeing the world and the people in it because of my torsional dystonia, because of my trials, because of my obstacles. I am seeing the world and the people in it because God has made a way for me to speak it. And It's ironic because when you listen to my voice, it's difficult at first to understand me. And there's certain words that I have a hard time pronouncing. So I I pause and think of a different word to say instead. (laughs) And it's, you would think just with hearing my voice that I would be a speaker. And I wouldn't think that either. I don't have the voice for it, and, but I do. Mm-hmm. And somebody pointed out to me, do you realize that the sound of your voice is actually a gift to you as a speaker? <laughs> because it causes your audience to pay attention. And if they don't pay attention, they miss something. So your voice is actually a gift because it draws people in to be quiet. Mm-hmm. I have friends who are youth pastors. And whenever I go speak to their junior high students, they are floored at their attention span. And I will speak to them for 30 to 40 minutes and they don't move because they're just mesmerized because they have to pay attention to my voice so that they're able to understand what I'm saying. And that's a gift. It is a gift. It is a gift. It's, a, it, it's so true. And, you know, even as you are presenting now, I want to bring us forward because I want to talk about this book. Because not only are you speaking your story, but now you have written your story. And there is much more between where we just left off with the swimming and getting walking again and today where we're going to talk about your book so people will need to buy the book and read more about what you've been through but I would like to bring us to now and talk about this book because the first time you and I ever spoke Chris you said I don't know if I can actually write a book, but I really feel like this is where I need to be. I, I, I want to write it. I want to share it and I'm ready to go. 
how do you feel now having written not only a book but a best-selling book it still has to hit me that i'm an author it's still very surreal i've been having this idea for writing the story in book four for years decades 30 years and I would begin and I would stop. I would begin and I would stop. I am not a writer. It doesn't come naturally for me. Writing this book probably took me twice as long as it does the average writer. It's just, that's the way it is with me. I, I labor over every word and it's exhausting. And writing a book was probably more difficult. I know this is a bold statement, but I would say it, it was more difficult for me to write my book than it was to get me two college degrees. Hmm. It was very difficult. And I don't say that lightly. It was exhausting. It was very painstaking but it was an active discipline that i wanted to do because this was the goal that i wanted to achieve and at one point a friend approached me and said when are you going to pick up the pit again so to speak and write your story and i told him that that ship is sailed i tried it and i just can't do it he said, yes, you can. You just need to work at it. I know your story so well, Chris. How about I give you assignments, so to speak, and I will bring up different aspects of your story, and your assignment would be to write about that story. Don't worry about chapters. Don't worry about pages. Just write what I ask you to write about. And so we did that for a while. And what he was doing was wise. He wasn't just trying to motivate me to get that going in me. And eventually he stopped giving me assignments and he let me just go with it. And I found myself eventually writing and writing and writing. And eventually after two and a half years, I had a manuscript and they were all in order of the chapters that I wanted the book to flow in. And I called it Swearables because of that. The theme of my life that God has constantly showed me about what he wants for my life as for purpose. It's one thing to speak your story and to be a speaker for a couple of decades now and going to travel at different places and speaking to audiences, but writing a book is so much more different than speaking. It's intentional. It's, you stare at the page every single day when you write. And it's a very methodical method of discipline that you're doing. And Instead of writing a book, you're actually creating a book. I like to be descriptive. My book has three elements that were very important for me to include in it. Every chapter has a description of a scene. I observe a lot. Because I am broken, I have noticed that I like little things. I sense that blesses me more than it would bless it, many people. I start sunsets a little bit longer. Why? Because I know what brokenness is. And so as I go through life, I observe things with sight. And my challenge was, as I wrote my autobiography, I wanted to bring those words pictures and build scenes into my story because I wanted to connect it to the reader when they would read through it. So I wanted to be descriptive. I wanted my story to be told. 
that at the end of every chapter, I wanted to turn the conversation from me to the reader and touch the reader with their scribbles, where they are in their faith in God. Do they know Jesus Christ? Do they have a relationship with him? Do they realize that God has a plan for their life? And so I, it was important for me to have the three elements with scribbles, description, tell the story, and tell it to the reader. It's been quite the process. It has been a journey, a beautiful journey, a difficult journey in the sense of hard work, really hard work. But I want to know, and I want you to share with the readers, what was it like when the book finally came in the mail? And after all of that and what you went through to get it onto the page, there was an, a brown box at your door and you open it up. What was that moment like? <laughs> I opened it up and I stared at my front cover of the book and stared at my flippenship on the cover of the book's scribbles and below it at the bottom, I stared at my name, Chris Simney. And I thought I was dreaming. <laughs> and I didn't, I can't believe that this is finished. And I flipped through the book, I went, just flipped through with the pages and all the chapters, and it just, it was exhilarating. And it was an accomplishment that was difficult to describe because it was a life dream of mine for years. And to hold your book for the first time, it's experience that it's, you can't describe it. But it's your book, it's your message, it's your story. It's how you, through God's help, oh, he is, it's, it's purpose-bound, for lack of a better word. Mm. And now it's God's story, and it's going to breathe, and it's going to gain traction, and it's going to influence audiences that, with speaking, you're not able to do so. And it's going to get into more hands. And what I like about my book is there are some things in this book that I don't think I ever spoke about from stage. And so even those who know my story inside and out because they've heard it spoken over the years, even they will find something different and new that they never knew about me. And that's the beauty of this book. And it was a labor of love. And I'm proud of it. <laughs> and it's fun to hear people talk about what they're getting from the book. And I didn't tell people I was writing a book, not this time around. And so what's this book was in my hands, I realized, okay, now I can let people know that I did this. And when I posted it on Facebook for the first time, it, it felt like it was Christmas. <laughs> people were receiving this gift. And it was a joy for me to watch their expressions because I think a lot of people who know me have been waiting for me to write a book. They may not have ever vocalized that to me, but they've just been waiting. And so when it hit the, the shelves, and when it hit Amazon, it was just a joy to see the reactions. And, it's been a fun ride ever since. And it's been a couple months now, and it still doesn't seem real to me. Well, it's only the beginning of that ride for you. And uh, you mentioned Christmas, so I feel like we should make a comment to people that if anybody is looking for a Christmas gift, it is a beautiful gift that they can give. <laughs> you know, this book, Chris is, is, I mean, it's just an intriguing story. You, you, from literally the first sentence until the end, it is captivating. And, and yet it isn't just for somebody who is looking to understand an interesting story or a disability or anything like that. It's really a book, uh, Chris, I think, for someone who 
is challenged and is mm. wondering how to get through whatever their get challenge might be. Somebody who is struggling with something and doesn't know how to get through. Or maybe you know somebody that is struggling and you would like to get them a gift of a book because ultimately this book is about hope. Mm. This book is about hope. And I, I really encourage any of the listeners who might be interested in a story about overcoming challenges. This is, this is a book for them. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. It's, I often tell people this. I don't have the answers. If this book wasn't a book to provide answers as boards, it is a book to help people celebrate their process. Because everybody processes difficult things in their life in a different way. You know, I wanted this book to begin a conversation in their own journeys about their own scribbles to really consider their story. And how powerful their story can be if they just keep going with it and if they just let it breathe life. It's not the most, it may not be the most beautiful aspects of what they want people to see about them, their blemishes, their scars, their brokenness, but it breathes life for somebody else when that is known. And to not give up on it and to find a way to let God use what you have that you feel is weak about you to be a blessing for somebody else. Beautiful. We could share so much more, but I do want to encourage the readers to get the book and, and read more themselves. Um, as we bring this to a close, Chris, I do always like to ask the question about it just takes one because it always yields a different answer from, from each person that is on the show. So I'd like to ask you, what does the phrase it just takes one mean to you? I feel like it just takes one. It's the beginning of a statement that you have to fill in. And it just takes one to inspire somebody else to live their purpose. It just takes one. That's my story. <laughs> That's the way. When people reach out to me, the way when I was really wrestling through my disability, my parents, my friends, counseling. It just takes one to inspire you to dream big. And when you dream big, you discover that you have a purpose that becomes a gift inside of you that you are able to share with others and if not the entire world. And it just takes one to allow people to dream. It just takes one to inspire somebody to be different and to realize that their difference ignites a purpose within them. And it becomes a message that they, in turn, just to become just one eventually for somebody else to do the same. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to me. Beautiful. It actually leads right into the final paragraph of your book, actually. <laughs> I want to be contagious. I want people to know that my life has been with Jesus. I am whole. I want to be a distinguishing mark. It's how I choose to live in the scribbles. This is how I write. Yes, amen. It is how we write. It's how we interpret the obstacles of our life to find the meaning of what they can fade to other people if we just have the courage to live through it. Beautiful. Chris, thank you so much. Before we finish, can you share with the listeners where they can find your book and where they can find you if they'd like to find out more about you? Yes, absolutely. You can find the book on Amazon. You can type in my name, Chris. I mean, scribbles might be a common word in the search. 
So if you type in Chris, it'd be S I M like Barry in like Nancy I N G, you'll find scribbles right there on Amazon. And if you would like to learn more about me and my speaking, this ministry that I'm a part of, you can go to chrissimningoneword.com and you will find me there. Wonderful. I will make sure that is included in the show notes as well so that they will have that available. Chris, it was a pleasure from beginning to end. I know this is you know, the end of our journey together as, as you writing, but I do look forward to staying in touch and watching where you go from here. Congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really appreciate all the work that you've done for me. And it's been a joy to get to know you. And I know that we will stay in contact. Thank you so much. Chris was referred to us at Scripter through a mutual friend, and the first time I got on a video call with him, I was so taken with the joy that he emanates. His entire being, his smile lights up the room, and I could feel that joyful energy from the screens that we were talking on on the computer. He is a very special man given a very special gift. And although many of us would struggle to call it a gift, I hope that now that you've listened to his story, you can see that it is. God's purpose in his life is clearly evident. And his story and his scribbles are all there to show you what it is. He made many comments that I thought were profound but even as he was talking and as I had edited his book, I kept being drawn back to that one day, that one Easter Sunday, when he got up out of bed and was no longer the same. I can't imagine what that moment was like for him and for his family. But I do know that through his faith, through his family, through his friends, and through the life that he has purposefully led, Chris's life became something even more that day. And I am so grateful to him for sharing his story and his experience with all of us. It's great food for thought, a story to stick with us even as this podcast comes to the end. Thank you so much for joining me today on It Just Takes One. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.